You're listening to the CLE Foodcast with Lisa Sands, the place for delicious conversation on local food and the people who grow, cook, and share it. Here's Lisa. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the CLE Foodcast. Today's guest is Jeremy Umansky, chef and owner of Larder Delicatessen and Bakery, a wildly successful neighborhood Jewish deli with a penchant for wild ingredients and interesting and innovative preparations. Jeremy and the team at Larder, which includes his wife and partner Allie and partner Kenny Scott, has been recognized for creating modern interpretations of traditional Jewish specialties. The team has been recognized with two James Beard nominations in the last few years. Jeremy is an accomplished chef, a master forager and fermenter, and a fungus expert, specifically Koji. In fact, he co-wrote a book called Koji Alchemy, Rediscovering the Magic of Mold-Based Fermentation. As a result, Jeremy has found himself with a national following and a large and prominent platform to discuss the things he cares about. He regularly uses his voice and his keyboard to share his knowledge about Eastern European foodways, foraging and fermenting methods, and also to champion causes that are important to him, including mental health, stress, and addiction, particularly among those in the culinary field. I got to know Jeremy over the past few years as a contributor to Edible Cleveland. His first-person story from the winter 2019 issue was an impactful account of his recovery from drug and alcohol addiction as a young man. Jeremy, welcome to the CLE Foodcast. Thank you, Lisa. That was quite the introduction. My, you can see my, my red shirt. My cheeks are totally matching it. <laughs> you have a little um, little uh, Santa Claus look there, the, the red berry cheeks. Yes, you do. That's, and your beard right. and your hair. You're, you, the pandemic looks good on you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a fantastic compliment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thank you for joining me. Uh, it's really great to see you over Zoom, and that is how we're recording today. So I'll do a little disclaimer. Sometimes there's a little uh, distortion that pops up. So if you're listening today, just know that's because Jeremy and I are not in the same room. Jeremy, tell me, are you double vaxxed? Oh, I, I surely am. I'm full. My whole household and Thank the maker, all of our employees are, are fully vaxxed at this point. So it, that's a really great feeling, not just for me and my family, but also like my coworkers in the community to know that like we're working in a safe space, we're doing things the right way. It's just great. Yeah, it feels good. You feel a little cocky, you know, when you <laughs> when you get double vaxxed, but at the same time, right, that doesn't mean we can all go out and go back to the way things were. We're still, we still need to ease in a little bit. And, um, you know, that's hard for us. Well, let's start by talking a little bit about last year. And I don't want to dwell on it too much, but as a small business owner in the culinary industry, last year was like none other. Take me back to the moment, which I guess would be in mid-March of last year, when you knew that you were not opening the next day and you turn to Allie and you turn to Kenny and you say, what? Yeah. And it was a big what, um, because, you know, there's a, a couple of things you have to look at. So the, the governor here in Ohio didn't expressly shut down restaurants, but said you could only operate if you do A, B and C. Um, and it was quite a few things more than A, B and C. Um, but it, took us um, a number of weeks to be able to uh, operate in the way that the state health department and the governor with, with his, his order uh, were saying that we could operate. 
Uh, I mean, just for us to be able to get the hand sanitizer that we were now legally obligated to have at the register for people, uh, it took us three weeks. And that was just one thing that if we didn't have that, we could not operate. Um, you know, even getting ingredients to make our own and that sort of thing, it, we just weren't able to get stuff. Uh, the price of gloves went up like tenfold, you know, and being able to afford that sort of stuff and have mass and everything for our all our employees. And then, you know, after we got to a point where we were able to operate and we were able to put our food out there and, and maintain a safe environment, we still even had this past fall, a couple employees who got COVID and we had to shut down for almost two weeks because the amount of time it took for the rest of us all to get tested and get our results back. Um, it, it was, uh, it was very efficient in, in terms of once we got in there and got it, but sure. some of our employees had to wait a week just to be able to get a test. Um, and during that time without knowing, you know, what level of exposure any of us had with the people that, that came down with COVID, you know, it just, you just have to, you have to close up. You know? Well, and you were probably in a better position than some other restaurants, some of your culinary, uh, sisters and brothers, because, you know, you're a deli. Uh, you had, first of all, I love eating in larder, which I will look forward to doing again because you, you created such both. a, right. I mean, it's such a fun environment. It's like the corner neighborhood place where you run into people. It's a lot of fun, but you were in a position where, um, you could actually get up and running and do a pretty brisk takeout business, right? Yeah. And you know, that's, that's the thing. So uh, we were very, very fortunate. And a lot of restaurants weren't in the position that we were in because from the beginning, when we opened, uh, half our business has been to go. Meaning that when we designed our food, when we designed our menu and how we were going to serve food and get it to people, we had already thought about, well, how does this you know, package up? Does it hold up on a 20 minute car ride home? Uh, is it still going to be warm? Are they going to have to reheat it? And then it might be chewy or just off or not look right. So we had, we had already put a lot of that design into, into our product from the beginning. You know, a lot of restaurants that were, were more formal or even casual, but that, that relied on sit down and wait staffs and whatnot, um, taking those steps and translating like a grilled steak with a, you know, sauteed asparagus, and whatever, to a to-go format is really, really difficult mm -hmm. um, to make sure that the product is how, how you want it to be uh, for people. You know, uh, aside from that, you know, there's other logistics too. And, and we unfortunately, right the first closure, we laid off our whole staff. Uh, so it was just me, Allie, and Kenny when we reopened for the better part of a month. Wow. Um, so business kind of picked up enough that we felt comfortable enough because we could have brought a couple of the employees back right away. But the question was, well, what if we're not busy enough? And then we have to say that I'm in a couple of weeks, like, hey, I need you to refile for unemployment or whatever it is. You know, it's tough enough having that conversation with people and saying, hey, you're going to be out of work and there's nothing any of us can do about it at this point. Yeah. So, um, you know, eventually we were able to bring back some of our staff, but still pre-pandemic, we are at 10 employees and, and mm -hmm. we're at six now. So it's, it's a whole new world. It made everybody make really hard decisions, as you said. And you, I think, I could be mistaken, but I remember in maybe in the mid to late summer when things were feeling pretty, oh, I don't know, like we just got used to it, right? We got used to the world that we were living in. You really remained, I'm going to say hyper vigilant about the safety of your 
uh, of your restaurant. You uh, you had people wait outside. You were very cautious about how many people would come in. And you took a little bit of flack for that, if I recall. I mean, people were not always understanding of the boundaries that you had set up. What was that like? And and how did you how did you deal with that? You know, it's 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 kind of a pain in the butt, <laughs> if I can be frank. You know, and here's the realization. I have a business that is me and my business partners, we own it. It's effectively a, a private business. We're not publicly traded. We don't, you know, or anything like that. So um, when it comes down to what happens in that space and what we feel is okay and not okay, it's kind of like the same rules that would apply to my house or your house. Uh, when you come to somebody's house, I don't care if it's your mother or your friend, and they say, take off your shoes, are you going to stand there and argue with them and be like, well, no, I want to bring my shoes in your house. I don't, I wear them in my house and that's okay. Why can't I wear, it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so we, we did get a lot of, a a little bit of flack and, you know, fortunately enough, me and my business partner, Kenny, um, you know, if someone wants to argue, I'm sorry, you're getting escorted right out the door and you can argue to your reflection in the mirror in the windows. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we just, we just have zero tolerance for it. Um, we're trying to create an environment that, uh, not only produces delicious food and it is a great place to be in while, while you can be in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's, it's gotta be safe. You sensed, I think wisely as we all did eventually that it was becoming kind of political, right? That, uh, that choice that you made to operate your business in a certain way, it felt like, I, and I, what I think it was now looking back as we were, there was like fatigue setting in, you know, and we saw what other people were willing to do. And then other people weren't doing it. And some of the lines were, they felt very gray, but I like the way you just said it. When you go somewhere, you abide by the rules of the house. Yeah. If you want to be there. So you just, you know, you, you shut up, you suck it up and you go and you get your delicious Koji cured pastrami sandwich. Well, and, and I think a step further too, we have the health department telling us these things. Mm-hmm. Just as they say, I have to cook food to a certain temperature. I have to discard food after it's X amount of time old. Like mm-hmm. all of these things that we have for food safety, this is all bundled into there. So us as operators, we take it just as seriously as any of the time temperature guides for holding food or the type, you know, sanitation steps for washing dishes. Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. this is all bundled in there because at the end of the day, if someone comes into Larder and gets COVID and it's traced back to Larder, in Mm -hmm. our eyes as operators, that's the same as E. coli or Listeria food poisoning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Especially with your knowledge of fermentation and, and, and growing mold and working with bacteria and things. I would think that your knowledge in particular, you have an extra layer, I think, of scientific knowledge that a lot of people just don't have. Well, and that's why we took this approach of contracting COVID. Like we didn't look at it as a pandemic per se and, and this pathogen that's, that's you know, being spread in the community. We looked at it as another food safety issue, a foodborne mm-hmm. illness issue. Mm-hmm. Um, because the reality is whether you get it from eating something or you get it from being in contact with someone, you're still getting it. And, and in a food service setting, that that has to be taken into account. I mean, we, we took it to the degree, degree too that, we, and we're still at this point, we cut 20 hours of operation out of our week. Um, we cut like three hours out of every day and then dropped a whole day. 
And part of that too was we we have an open kitchen. I mean, you can see everything. You can talk to all our employees, you know, when you're in the space and everything. And part of that was what level of responsibility we felt for the safety of our employees. And, you know, let's say a busy day, uh, 100, 150 people coming in and out of our space, yet we're yep. trapped in there. So we, we needed to essentially limit the time that our employees and us were also exposed to the public in these sorts of things. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's been very much a two-way street with that. Yeah. And, you know, people forget that you're in a business to make great food, to make money. It's your business. You want to see people. We as diners, as consumers, as customers have to remember that you're going home to families. You're going home to a daughter. You may have elderly people in your life. Um, you know, it wasn't just about me getting food, right? We, we really all had to take a step back and think beyond ourselves. And, you know, I think for the most part, people performed brilliantly. I think we rose to, oh, everybody rose to the occasion. Those that didn't, uh, you know, we know who the people in our lives are that just, you know, couldn't bear to live by this very, in the scheme of life, temporary set of rules. And, um, you know, that's unfortunate, but the good news is, is that we seem to be, you know, moving out of it. And in that respect, what, what are you looking at now forward? What are you thinking about? Are, are, can people dine in yet? Or have you not started that? Well, people can dine in at restaurants now, but I mean, at Larder. So at Larder, no. The way our space is designed, we're very much, you know, like a railroad apartment, this long and skinny space. Mm-hmm. And we honestly don't have the square footage to be able to set up tables and have a line of people coming in to pick up their food at the same time. So until we see some change in directive, um, you know, from from the health department, from the state, that's kind of where we're going to be. Hopefully, by the time the weather starts to turn again, you know, mid-fall, we'll be in a spot where we can do that. And we'll see some easing of those restrictions. And hopefully people will continue to get vaccinated and everything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are those are some of the things that we're looking at there. For the short term, um, we have a great patio that we share with Rising Star Coffee in front of our building. And our friends at Saucy Brew Works, who are the next block over from us, uh, took over over an awesome space behind our building and they've got all these great picnic tables up. It's a beer garden on the weekends and they allow our customers and Rising Stars customers and other customers in the neighborhood who are getting food to just go back there and hang out and have a, a beautiful socially distanced meal outside. Oh, that's so, fantastic. That's it, great. Yeah, yeah. And the people at Saucy have been been great with their conviviality with, with the other business owners in, in that. Mm-hmm. So Well, that's really smart because that neighborhood is, it's been vibrant for quite some time, but now there's a lot more activity. There's a lot more uh, new residents in there. I think that you were in a great location, honestly, to, you know, whether someone was just coming and getting food and running it back to their apartment or their house or, you know, taking uh, a picnic down to Edgewater or something like that. I think that, you know, people just got creative in how they enjoyed their food. Yeah, very much so. So uh, I think in the short term, one of the things that I'm looking forward to most is since we've opened. And we've offered various classes on everything from charcuterie making and fermentation and koji mm. to wild food foraging. And we didn't do any of the classes this past year. But now that I'm fully vaccinated, uh, we're going to be starting up the foraging classes. And, and I'm really looking forward to those. Those are those are going to be great. And it's going to be nice to be outside with people enjoying nature, too. So that's oh, for sure. That's, it's it's going to be wonderful. I love it. Well, that's exciting. That's definitely something to look forward to. 
I want to pivot just a bit to talk about something else that I know is very personal to you. My initial question will be colored a little bit by COVID related to the difficulties of the last year for the culinary industry. I'm sure having to have a conversation with your staff and say, hey, we're going to let you go so that you can collect unemployment and we'll see you when we see you and we don't know when that's going to be. I'm sure that's very difficult. If you are um, another restaurateur in town who says, you know what, I'm going to close my flagship restaurant because the model just doesn't work and I don't know if it's going to work again in the future. And oh, by the way, I've got to let 30 people go. Um, And just in general, right, this has been a very stressful time. You've been very honest and open about your struggles with sobriety, tracing back to when you were a teen. What do you think the experience has been like for people in the culinary industry who were really struggling? I mean, what did you see uh, in your, and what did you talk about in your conversations? Now, I mean, certainly not asking you to divulge anything personal, but there sure. had to have been some people really struggling. And I'm wondering if you were able to, to help with that or, or weigh in on that. Yeah. And the thing to kind of keep in mind too, with, with some of these things with, uh, you know, mental health and, and addiction and everything associated um, especially concentrating on the, the food industry is people are going to continue to struggle. That's just the nature of these, these afflictions, uh, these diseases. That being said, I mean, the pandemic has made it really difficult for anybody, whether they, they work in the, the industry or not, just dealing with their sobriety. I mean, in all honesty, if I was getting sober now, I, I'd be a disaster. It, it would It would probably be I mean, it's always been the most difficult thing I've ever done, but um, it would be incredibly difficult because mm-hmm. a lot of it relies on, you know, getting together with other people right. who, who are affected by this. And if you don't have the resources to do that now, it's it's pretty difficult. I mean, I remember in early sobriety, sometimes it'd be hard to get a ride to, to you know, go to a meeting and, and meet up with some sober people. Um, I, I, and I want to kind of say too, in some ways, I know quite a few people who have either been struggling with sobriety or trying to get sober during the pandemic who have actually kind of looked at it as a blessing. So even though you haven't been able to, you know, in-person network with sober people and that sort of thing and, and, and embrace support groups uh, in the physical world, you have had time to take you out of the environments where you're using was prevalent, you know, excluding one's home. But, you know, this whole thing of getting off of your shift, you know, at 11, 12, 1 a.m. from a restaurant, and everybody going to the bar to get drinks and hang out and decompress, you know, some of those things Mm. weren't happening anymore. Um, You know, we weren't serving people in the restaurants in terms of alcohol for a long time until some of the directives, you know, for to-go sales and that sort of thing came by. So being able to, to grab a shift drink in the restaurant or, you know, finish the bottle of whatever that someone left behind, like those things weren't happening. So from that standpoint, I actually heard from a lot of people that some of this has been actually easier than it had been previously, because there was such a shift in what they were able to have access to and when. Hmm. That being said, on the flip side, you do have the isolation of the pandemic. 
and isolation for people that suffer from any of any of these diseases or mental health issues um, is the opposite of what you need to be healthy. Thankfully, though, we're, you know, well off into the 21st century. And just as you and I are, you know, chatting from miles away, yet we're in real time and we can see each other and hear each other. Mm-hmm. The same thing applies for different support groups and whatnot. So it's it's been really fantastic to kind of see how some of that has evolved and 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 come up and and I'll tell you what in the restaurant industry with the work schedule that most people typically have you know you're you're doing a 10 to 12 hour day your day maybe starts at noon and goes to to midnight that's when most of the rest of the world is up and out and doing things. So now that some of these support groups and whatnot have um, moved to digital spaces, they're actually a little bit easier to kind of plan and access. Uh, You don't have to travel anywhere. So you could take a 30 minute break at work or whatever it is and jump on one of these meetings from your phone with some headphones plugged in and be able to do it. Whereas that wasn't something that was available from before. So Mm -hmm. some of these things have actually been, I, I feel in that positive and they'll continue to be that way. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens uh, fall, winter, early next year. I think that this window of time will show that it it, it led to some creativity. It led to some thoughtful soul searching of whether people wanted to be in the industry or maybe people, you know, wanted to really, they're like, you know, I'm, I'm doing this fine dining thing, but what I really want to do is act. Um, I think we're already seeing, I think, some movement in that area. And that's going to be really exciting. Do you think that like fine dining is, is, is a thing, or do you think there's, um, I, I, well, I'll have to tell you, I've been out a couple of times and I, I feel like people are coming back to restaurants and drugs. Um, in fact, almost, almost, I agree. almost too, too many, if you ask me. Um, but I am curious, is there a trend or a thing that you think we're going to see more of in, let's call it the next calendar year? Um, I, you know, that's a tough question because we've seen trends develop over the past decade, right? Like that's how we know that they're trends and that's how we know to, to cater our businesses to the next stage of evolution for any industry. Um, so, um, you know, as far as fine dining goes, fine dining, I think will always be here always, always, always. And we saw that through the pandemic, we saw the upper echelon of fine dining restaurants able to maintain some level of service in person because they had the resources, specifically the capital to be able to, you know, plexiglass things in and have reservation systems that handled things. Um, Because when it comes down to it, uh, someone who has a lot of money and wants to eat good food is going to do that. And, you know, we're in a capitalistic society, like that's how our economy works. Mm -hmm. Um, So fine dining, I feel will always be there and always have a place. Mm. Um, Plus, I feel in terms of food as art, fine dining is the, the, the preservation, the, the living, breathing entity of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we call it the culinary arts for a reason. So it's always going to be there. I think it's always fine dining isn't going anywhere. I, I think, you know, in the past 10 years, we've seen more and more trends towards things like uh, organics, local food. Those are huge things. But I also think uh, quick service convenience foods. So kind of, which is interesting because um, that's like what a delicatessen is. And that's what a delicatessen has been for, I don't know, 200 years at this point. So I think we're going to see more 
uh, interpretations of like casual and quick service. For mm-hmm, people. Mm-hmm. Well, I um, think what, you know, I think with larder, it is a delicatessen, but it's a delicatessen where you, you play in a lot of interesting areas. Um, some, some really ancient, if you're talking about, you know, Koji and fermentation, but what I like about, uh, what you're doing is you're taking, you're educating people about your culinary, um, your, your culinary cultural conditions, like the gefilte fish and the latkes, you know, you're introducing them to people who may think they know them or may think that they don't like them or want them. And then actually you put a new spin on them and now that now everybody wants them, you know? So I think that that layer of cultural discovery that you do is, is very, very cool. And, um, I, I hope we see more of that actually. Yeah. There's always, there's always plenty more. You know, you have to kind of keep in mind, we continually forget so much about what our food is. So, um, you know, I think one of the most important things, especially for creativity and food in the 21st century and with the modernist movement and everything is this continual reinterpretation, Um, looking through lenses of technology and scientific understanding and also current sensibilities is, you know, where food evolves. So, you know, to think that a given food that we're going to be eating right now is something that maybe nobody's ever experienced before, that just like anything else, that really isn't the case. But it's been rediscovered, right? Um, Modern sensibilities have been put on it. It may be an archaic tradition, but when we put a individual's cultural lens and these modern sensibilities on it, it does, it becomes something new in a way um, mm-hmm. and refreshing for the, for the people that are enjoying it. So mm-hmm. that's, that's always the big drive and the big push. Do you think of yourself as a chef personality? Um, no, I, I don't. Uh, and in fact, when I was an apprentice, I apprenticed under a, a French chef from Lyon. Um, and uh, Stefan was the greatest guide and instructor and teacher I could ever have. But if I wasn't moving fast enough, Stefan would like, he'd, he'd put some heat under me. Uh, Stefan would yell, he'd throw things, people would get burned. There'd be, uh, you know, it was very, very traditional. And I was, uh, you know, in, in retrospect at the time, I was very proud to be working underneath a chef like that because those behaviors have become so storied. Um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, you read a chef writing about their life, their work or talking about it. And there was always this similar thread as they were put through the boot camp, right? You know, they, they went through that traditional apprenticeship and and felt it. So, um, I decided after going through that, that I wasn't going to be that type of chef, Mm -hmm. uh, that I wasn't going to yell, um, you know, I wasn't going to, uh, wet your side towels. You were holding hot pans with, so you'd move quicker. So your hands didn't get burned. Like those oh, things, awful. I, you know, it, it, <laughs> it, uh, I'll tell you what, you can cook fast as heck. <laughs> you learn, you learn to go, go fast, but you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going to do those things as my career kind of went along. I guess I became more of a chef's chef meaning like through the fermentation, through working with Koji and these other things and, and the procurement of, of wild edibles, I started to really focus on making things that chefs would then cook with. So I would make the condiments, the ferments, I would preserve things in a way that a chef could compose around it with other fresh ingredients. And then I would be able to bring ingredients to the table that you know mm-hmm. other chefs weren't working over, maybe in some cases didn't even know what they were. So that's kind of where I really started to focus and kind of 
carve my own niche and, and find a way. And, and now we find restaurants that specifically are just looking to hire a larder master mm. or a wild food forge mm-hmm. or to actually be part of the full-time staff. Uh, and, and that was something that I wanted to push for and focus on. Uh, in my career and hopefully see that opening up to others. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you've definitely established yourself as a thought leader in the culinary world, in particularly some of those areas that are you're most passionate about. I was so curious to see how you would answer that question, because to me, the word that comes to mind when I think of you is is thoughtful. I think you're, you know, you're a nice human, you're a good human. I think you wake up every day wanting to be the best, the best you, the best dad, the best husband, the best small, small business owner, the best chef. But I also think that you're finding your voice in a lot of different ways. You know, I, you're obviously an expert in your field. You're, you love training and educating and teaching. I think that it's wonderful that you are raising a daughter and and, and another perhaps on the way. And, and, and another, um, totally. so exciting. And I love your generosity of spirit uh, in telling your story and sharing the challenges that you've had. You're still a very young man. And I think you just have so much that you will do. And I'm glad that you're for right now doing it in Cleveland. I'm, I'm just really looking forward to seeing where you head next, how, how Larder continues to bounce back and evolves and changes. And I love your voice and I love your voice beyond just food, because as we know, food is, food is important. It's political. There are issues of access and equity in our food systems. And I think that you're not, you don't shy away from those things. In that respect, I actually do think you've carved out a niche for yourself here. And I hope that you use your voice um, for more of those things. I really do. And and that's the goal. That's the goal, you know, and and I think in the coming years, some of these things you brought up about uh, food inequity, access to fresh food, um, you know, those are, those are things I've always focused on in my career. And I was very active uh, with slow food for a number of years promoting those. But I think more and more, we really just got to start getting that dialed in. And I think the pandemic has really showed us that. Um, you know, I talk to anybody at the Greater Cleveland Food Bank and or drive by, you know, the, the police lots on, on uh, the shoreway, uh, you know, right outside of downtown twice a week. I mean, there is literally it's backed up for over a mile of people yeah. picking up food from the food bank. You see that and you think, well, okay, well, mm-hmm. what, what more, what more can I do? What more can I do to help out? And whether you're someone that has financial resources to, to, you know, invest in the problem, or you just have ideas, um, you know, maybe you just have an extra can of soup or, or a bag of apples in your fridge. I guarantee all of us out there know someone who has food insecurities and we need to be more convivial. You know, that's, that's what it boils down to. We just, we, we need to help more. Yeah. And there's, and there's greater issues with that too, about, you know, on average general food production in itself, just going from farm to the supermarket, there's like 35% of everything produced is trash before it even hits the supermarket or once it hits the supermarket. In my opinion, we have to start looking at more smaller um, food hubs, uh, as opposed to just having these big distribution farms and just a few points across the country, the more if we have little food hubs or even a couple in each county countrywide where they're pulling from local farms and they're getting the food out there, 
I think we'll be able to tackle the issues of food waste, which is, is so important too. Because the more food we can keep in our system, the cheaper it can be too. The, that 35% of food that gets discarded, you know, by the time it hits a supermarket, it's also driving up the price of food 35% because we have 35% less. So, yeah. you know, I, yeah. and the next couple of years, that's, that's going to be a huge focus for us. I will look forward to um, talking with you in the future on that. I don't doubt that you will be a, a very loud voice in that conversation. I thank you for making time to talk to me and our CLE Foodcast listeners. This is a new endeavor for me. It's really an honor to have you be one of my, really my first five guests. So um, thanks for that. I was so excited. I was so excited when you asked me. So everybody listening, listen to the next episode, subscribe and go support your local economy, whether it's a local restaurant or a local shop, whatever it is, keep that money in our community. Well said, Jeremy Umansky. CLE Foodcast is a project of Fork in the Road Productions, and it sounds awesome thanks to the editing and sound engineering by my friend Bill Connors. CLE Foodcast is supported by KDK12 Studios. Let Matt and Ron help you with custom art, design, and print work. They make teas, mugs, painted portraits, printed cards, and a whole lot more. Get started at kdk12studios.com. Please follow CLE Foodcast on Facebook and Instagram, where we will alert you to new episodes. And in the meantime, enjoy life, stay hungry, be kind, and always, always set a bigger table. Thanks for listening.